Destiny City, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. You know what it means to be like Jesus. You know, we, we answer the question, and rightly so, we should desire that more than anything else because that's our goal is to be Christ like Jesus. That's what God desires of us. That's what maturity is really all about. Growing to that place in our life and relationship with Christ, that we become more like Him. He's our Father. We want to be like Him. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 1, to be imitators of God as dear children. That word imitators is the word mimites, which means we get the root word from, it's the root word for mimic. So we mimic God. That's what we're supposed to do. But man, it's, it's a lot more than just going to church, just going through the motions or saying a hallelujah or praise the Lord every now and then. It's so much more than that. It's a daily walk with God. It's a relationship with Jesus where that he begins to increase and we begin to decrease. So there's more of him than there is of us in our own lives where self begins to die. So let's just examine a little bit what it means to be like Jesus because every one of us, just say this with me, oh, to be like Jesus. That's our desire. Paul says that, you know, in all of the things that he had gone through in his life and in Philippians chapter three, he says, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But then he goes on, being made conformable unto his death. Wow. Being made conformable. You mean Paul was saying that I want to be like Jesus to the point that I die for him? That's exactly what he was saying. In order that I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's a lofty goal for all of us to have and a right one to have. But there, there are a few other characteristics that, that Jesus has for us. You know, we, we, we want to have his power and his authority. How many want the power and authority of Jesus? How many of y'all would like to walk on water? Yeah, raise the dead, heal the sick, empty out the hospitals, all of that. You know, we, we'd love to do miracles. I mean, even turn water into wine. I did a wedding yesterday, and I told, them, told some folks at the wedding, I said, maybe we better get over, get over to, the, um, to the reception before somebody goes over and turns the wine into water. Because we get so religious about things, you know. But Jesus actually turned water into wine. It wasn't grape juice, it was wine. So if, if, if that blows your theological reasoning, just get over it. Because it was real. Because there's joy at a wedding. You know? But I want, I want to get down to something here. Jesus said that these signs will follow them that believe in my name. They will cast out devils, they'll heal the sick, they'll do all of these things, and speak with new tongues, all that good stuff, and all that's wonderful, and all that's good, and we should be doing that, but there's something else about Jesus that he did that most of us want to shy away from. I think you know where I'm probably going, don't you? One day, Jesus was walking up the road on the way to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he was walking ahead of them. Then he took his disciples aside and he began to tell them what's going to happen to him. He said, I'm going up to Jerusalem. And there, he said, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to 
be killed. I'm going to be delivered up to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to come back to life. And then the disciples are like, no, this can't happen. Peter, you know, he really got all upset about Jesus saying that. Going to be killed. What are you talking about? We're not going to let that happen to you, Jesus. You know, they wanted to protect him. Peter said, I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. He was the one that was most outspoken. But Jesus knew what was in his heart too, didn't he? Kind of set him straight on some things. But he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, deliver him up to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. How many still want to be like Jesus? Okay. Now, two of the disciples revealed the sentiment that most of the other disciples were thinking, but they didn't say it. And a lot of us today, the modern day saints, would think this way too. So they're, they're talking on the road, and they go up to Jesus, and they said to him, said, uh, hey, uh, when you establish your kingdom... Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on the right and one on the uh, left. This was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, of course. And and one of them wanted to sit on the right and left. Uh, One of the other gospels says that his mother actually came up. Their mother actually came up and did it. But Mark just kind of gets to the point. It was really in their heart to do it. They probably put the mother up to it. But they, they wanted one of them wanted to sit on the right hand, one of them wanted to sit on the left. And what did Jesus say to them? He says, are you able to... Be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left, this is not mine to give, but for those to whom it has been prepared. Now, the other disciples, a lot like us, when we hear somebody that's, you know, aggressively uh, passionate about advancing themselves we kind of get a little upset with them, you know, and they, they got really ticked off at the other disciples and they had the mitigated gall and audacity to go up to Jesus and ask him that question. I mean, who do you think you are that you would be, you know, elevated above us and one sit on the right and the other? Does that mean, you know, that's what got Joseph in trouble with his brothers when he told them that they were going to bow down and worship him? You know, they said, what? But they, they didn't like it. So they, they came up to Jesus and and they said, it says that they became indignant with James and John. They were really aggravated, agitated. So Jesus calls everybody over and says, come on, guys, get, gather in. He said, I want to tell you something. He says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's kind of a pecking order, you know. We got these guys that, uh, you know, are, are, are rulers, and they rule it over these, and then somebody rules over them, and... On and on it goes, and it's kind of that way in our country today, but that's just the way things are. And he, and he goes on, and he says, but it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to be, become great among you shall do what? Shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man... Jesus said, I came with purpose, and my purpose is this, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. Jesus said, I didn't even come to be a ruler over you. I came to serve you. Now, Jesus, 
exemplified this everywhere he went. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, surely you've heard about Jesus who went about, you know, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing what? Doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Jesus went about doing good. I mean, what was the first act Jesus did? Was it to heal somebody? Was it to heal a leper, raise the dead? Or what? what was it? No, he went to a wedding and he turned water into wine. That was his first miracle. That was a good thing, right? Because it run out of wine. I mean, your weddings are supposed to be happy. And maybe it helped in the wedding to have a little wine to cheer everybody up. I don't know. But obviously they needed it because Jesus turned the water into wine and that was his first act. But from there, everywhere that Jesus went, he was doing good. He was healing people, talking good about people, forgiving people, you know, redeeming their lives everywhere, everywhere he went. Now, the Apostle Paul had this to say. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another, what? As more important than himself. Is that easy to do? We're programmed, it's in our DNA to be, you know, to look out for number one. Forget you, man. You know, there's one donut left and I'm hungry. I'm going to get that thing. I'm not going to share it with you either. Or, you know, we, we, we have a tendency to think more of ourselves. And Paul said, let no man think more highly of himself than he ought. But let others esteem him highly for what? His work's sake. So I, I remember going to a Billy Graham crusade, not a crusade, but a Billy Graham school of evangelism one time. And we were gathered at this large hotel just across the French Broad River. I don't know what it's called now. It used to be called the Hilton or something, but it's changed names several times. But at that time, I think it was the Hilton. And that's where the, the, the conference was being held. And I remember I was standing out in the, in the foyer. And all of a sudden, everybody just turned and started Moving in one direction, and I looked, and I saw this, this tall figure walking in from the back of the hotel, walking toward the, the, the middle of the foyer. And you might guess who it was. It wasn't Jesus, but it was Billy Graham. And so everybody was just flocking around him, you know, wanting his autograph and everything else, you know. And Billy's just like, <laughs> I, he said, I just wanted to come out here and say thank you for coming just very gracious, just very kind. And then he does something just totally what you wouldn't expect of somebody who was such a celebrity. He goes over and sits down. And some of the people are like, what? Some of them just started wandering away. Well, I just went over to him and I just said, may I shake your hand? And he, he shook my hand and he says, how are you today? He's very gracious. And I, I I learned something about Billy Graham that I didn't know before then. He was a very humble man. But more important than that, he was a very giving individual. I went to this conference, and I went with this arrogant, 
attitude of being a Pentecostal charismatic and how's this Baptist guy going to uh, impact my life? That was very proud and arrogant and stupid. But I found out that he had a huge impact on my life at that moment. Because I saw someone who really walked in true humility before God. And everything he did was as a service to the Lord. He wasn't in it for himself. Because I walked in there. I think I paid $25 to go to the conference. And I walked away with about $300 worth of materials and things that they just put in my hands. Didn't For free. I'm thinking... Is this what the Billy Graham Association is really all about? These were materials that I still use today that have been such a huge benefit to my life. And I'm thinking, wow, this is service. This is giving. And I learned something. And, and, and to see how the people around him served, I wondered, where did they get that? You know, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I, I saw how these people were serving people everywhere you went. I mean, everything was all set up. Everything was just just planned out perfectly, and, and people were just scurrying everywhere, serving. I thought, man, this is, this is really what it's all about. And, and I learned something from there. But, but Paul, goes, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And I think that's what Billy Graham did in his ministry, in his life, is he regarded others more important than himself. He never elevated himself above anybody else. But he says... Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And this is the kicker right here in, in verse 5. And I want you to say it with me. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of attitude did Jesus have? Did he have a Messiah complex? I've come, Messiah is here. I think that's what they were looking for. They were looking for a king to come riding in on a stallion, not a servant to come riding in on a donkey. They were looking for someone who would exalt himself as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But Jesus came not to exalt himself, but to humble himself. Because Paul says that this is the kind of attitude he said, had, who, verse 6, who Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Wow. Equal with God, yet that's something that he didn't hold on to. Rather, he did this. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of what? He emptied himself of his royalty and his high supremacy. And he came and was born in a manger, the lowliest of places, raised as a carpenter's son. I mean, he could have been born in a palace, but he was born in a stable instead. He emptied himself. And he took on the form of a bondservant. You know what a bondservant is? The Greek word is doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. Doulos. And it means a common slave. That's what it means. I mean, if we want to get technical in everything about slavery and everything else, then we ought to go apologize to Jesus because he was a slave who made himself a slave so that you and I could be free and we could become the sons of God. He, but he 
made himself, being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became what? Obedient. How obedient? To the point of death. Even more than that, even the death on a cross, which was the most despicable way to die. The only people who died on a cross were the worst of the worst. The hardened criminals were the ones who died on the cross. And Jesus' mode of death was the cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. I think it was important for him to do that because he was painting a picture of what did the Passover represent? We go back into the book of Exodus and we see in Exodus chapter 12, the story of the Passover, how that, you know, Moses had, had come with the rod of God and he had, had performed miracles before Pharaoh and, and, and none of them really got to Pharaoh to the point that he was willing to let the people of Israel go until this one thing happened. And that was when God says, I'm going to send the death angel. And he's going to kill the firstborn of every household, of every living thing, of cattle and sheep and oxen and everything else. The firstborn of everything in all of Egypt is going to be smitten by the death angel. Unless, unless there's an application of the blood of the lamb, you're to take a pure spotless lamb And to slay that animal and take its blood and put it on the doorpost and the the threshold of the house. And he says, when the death angel comes, what will he do? He will pass over. And so he said that you are to eat a meal before you are to, before this incident is to take place. To eat the lamb that was slain and, and you to eat it with bitter herbs and, 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 and you to prepare yourself for a journey, which they did. Of course, we know after that, that, that when the, the, the death angel came and, and Pharaoh's house was stricken and his firstborn died and all the, the firstborn of every household in all of Egypt died just exactly like God said it would. Suddenly, Pharaoh was ready to get rid of him. He said, get out of here. Leave. Go. We're done with you. You know, take everything you got and get out of here. And so they did. But you know, the Passover prepares us for something too. One of these days, there's going to be an exodus. It's going to be soon. And we got to prepare for it. And only those who've applied the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, are going to go in the exodus. Where are we going to? We know. Going to heaven. And it's going to be soon. But Jesus applied his blood. He was the Passover lamb. And he was showing his disciples. He was telling them, I'm going to die. And then he took bread and he broke it. And he told them, he blessed it. He gave thanks. And he said, take this bread, eat it. As often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he did the same thing. He blessed it and he said, he said, this cup. Represents the blood of the covenant that is poured out for you. 
So he was representing to them the Passover that was to take place, his own blood, the blood of the lamb. And the bitter herbs represented what was getting ready to happen to him, the suffering that he was to endure and the suffering of the people of Egypt or the people of Israel when they left Egypt. So Jesus is having this feast with his, his, his disciples. But just before they were to eat, Jesus did this, this thing. He's sitting there with his disciples just a few hours away from his betrayal. Sitting in a room, getting ready to eat the Passover meal. In John 13, he gives us this account. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose up from supper, and he cast aside his garments. He took off his outer garments, and he laid them aside. I don't have a robe, but that's what Jesus would have had on. He laid his outer, outer garments aside. Then he goes over. And there's a pitcher of water and a basin. And he takes that pitcher of water and that basin. And he takes it over, takes a towel, and he wraps it around his waist. Now, what was the towel signifying? That's what a common slave would wear. They didn't have an outer garment. All they would have, just have this little skirt thing on that they would wear, maybe some linen underwear or something, but that's all they would wear. No shoes on their feet or nothing. So Jesus goes over and he takes a pitcher of water and he pours it into a basin. Then he goes over and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter jerks his foot back. He says, you're going to wash my feet? He said, not so, Lord. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. And Peter says, well, okay. How about washing my hands and my face and my head then? And Jesus says, Peter, you're already clean. You took a bath. But I want to show you something. He takes Peter's feet and he begins to wash them. And I'm sure his feet were probably pretty dirty from the places that he had walked. And begins to wash Peter's feet. Who would wash the feet of people coming into the house? The servants. And Jesus begins to wash their feet, and as he's talking to them, he begins to tell them, he says, I want you to do this for each other. He said, now who's greater, the servant or the master? Who's greater, the one who was sent or the one who sent him? He said, I came to do the will of the Father. I came to serve. 
I'm your teacher. I'm your master, your rabbi. And if I will wash your feet, then you should also wash the feet of others. You should serve them. And Jesus washed his feet. And he took the towel that he'd wrapped around his feet. And he began to dry the disciples' feet. And he went around the circle. And I'm sure he probably got to Judas Iscariot. Did he skip over him? No. He washed his feet too. Knowing that in just a few minutes, Judas Iscariot was going to go out and betray him. But he washed his feet too. Was it on the basis of his worthiness? No. It was why he was sent. Why? Why are we saved? Is it because of our worthiness? No. Because of God's love for us and his mercy and his grace. He sent Jesus to show us how to serve. I'm sure that after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, he probably gave each one of them a big old hug. Told them how much they meant to him. How much he loved them. He exemplified servitude. Purest form of washing his disciples' feet. What are we willing to do? What are we willing to do? You know, we don't want the menial task in the body of Christ. We don't want to do the things that nobody notices. You know, we'll all come and try out for the praise and worship team or get an opportunity to preach. We'll do that because we got something to say. But will we do those things that are vital and important in the kingdom of God? Will we come and will we serve? Will we take on the form of a servant and serve God? You know, promotion comes from the Lord. Jesus learned, he learned how to be Messiah. He learned through obedience. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, what do you got to do? What's the ticket? You got to learn how to serve. You got to learn how to serve. It's not easy. I remember going to my pastor when I first got saved and I was thinking, you know, I've been saved for three weeks now. I'm ready to teach Sunday school or something. You know, or I can help with the youth group. I got some musical talents. So I go to pastor and I tell him, pastor, I want to serve. What can I do? He said, can you be here in the morning at eight o'clock? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, bring a pair of gloves and some good shoes. I said, okay. So I come the next morning and just as I came up, a truck was backing up. It was a big tandem load of gravel. And he dumped it right in front of the main entrance to the church. The pastor comes out and puts a shovel in my hand. And he said, would you mind spreading that gravel around real good and make it nice and level so the cars can park on it? 
I'm like, all for Jesus. <laughs> so I worked all day long. I mean, it took me about seven o'clock that evening to scatter all that. It was hot as blue blazes, man. Thankfully, I was fit because I was a construction worker at the time anyway, so it didn't bother me too much because I was used to shoveling concrete, so I shoveled all that stuff around, got it all spread out. So I go back in, I was kind of proud, and I go up to the pastor, and I tell him, I said, well, I got that done. I said, what else you got for me? He said, can you be here in the morning again? Bring another pair of gloves. So I come the next morning, guess what? Beep, beep, beep. (laughs) Another load of gravel. Only this one's bigger than the day before. So I scattered that gravel all day long. I mean, I worked hard. Got all that gravel spread and everything else. I go back in. I tell the pastor, well, I got it done. I'm going to go get some supper. He said, well, could you be here tomorrow evening? I said, sure. So I came back the next evening. I said, what you got for me, pastor? He said, well... We're making an a, a infant nursery or toddler nursery. So we want to put one of those little toilets in here. So we need a, we need a, a, a place for the pipe to go. But we've got six inches of concrete. So you need to take a chisel and a sledgehammer and dig me out a hole all the way back to this spot that I've drawn in the floor. So it was about 18 feet long or so. So I went to work with the chisel and worked on that and finally got that done. And when I got that done, I went back to him and said, Pastor, what else you got for me? He said, well, if you'll come back tomorrow, he says, I need you to mix up some concrete and build me a little pad for air conditioner to go on. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) So I come back the next day and, and do that. That was my introduction to ministry. But you know what? It's good for me. It was good for me. I, I, I'd like to tell the story about Mylon Lefevre, who, Mylon Lefevre, when he was 16 years old, he was in a family, and they were called the Lefevres, a very popular Southern gospel group. But Mylon wrote a song, and the name of the song was, Without Him, I Could Do Nothing, Without Him, I'd Surely Fail. And Elvis Presley had gotten a hold of the song and recorded it. Consequently, it became a number one hit which made Mylon Lefevre quite wealthy in those days and quite famous as a songwriter. So he began to write songs. Some of his songs were, were recorded by the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and other people. He actually sang backup for Eric and sang backup for the Stones on a couple of tours. And so he became quite popular in that way, but he had, had the big head. Well, all of a sudden, things just kind of dried up for him, and he actually started a group called uh, the Atlanta Rhythm Section and toured with them for a while. And, um, but after that, you know, they, they kind of, their popularity kind of waned. And, and so things weren't looking so good for him. And, and therefore, a short while, Mylon had committed his life to the Lord and had gone through a season, a short season, where he'd actually recorded a Christian album and stuff like that. It really didn't do much. But anyway, Mylon had really gotten discouraged. I don't know what happened, but he kind of fell away from the things of the Lord. But one night, he was down in Atlanta, Georgia, in a, in a, a IHOP. And this guy was sitting at a table, and Mylon had seen him on television. And he goes over to the guy, and he says, I know you from somewhere. Where is it? I've seen you. And he says, I don't know. Sit down. So he sits down. Come to find out, the guy was Pat Robertson of the 700 Club. 
And so Pat begins to talk to him, and Pat just reads his mail. God just gives him a prophetic word right there in the, in the IHOP. And, and Mylon just totally repented and got right with God. And Mylon thought, I need to do something for God now. I said, I just really feel like the Lord has called me to do something. So he goes to a pastor and he asked, uh, he asked uh, Pat Robertson, he said, who would be a good pastor in this area to get connected with? He said, well, Dr. Paul Walker pastors a church down in Atlanta here, just outside of Atlanta, called Mount Perrin Church of God. He said, go and see him. And so he goes to uh, Dr. Walker and he said he comes driving up in his, his, um, his Porsche, parks out front in one of the visitor parking spaces, and he goes inside, and he goes in, and Dr. Walker was waiting for him, and he asked Dr. Walker, he says, my name is Mylon Lefebvre. He says, yeah, I knew you were coming, because Pat told me you were coming. He said, well, I'm here to help you. You know, I, I, I've, I've been on tour with the Stones. I've been on tour with Eric Clapton. I wrote a best-selling song. I was with the Lefevers for a year. I think I can help your music program. Dr. Walker looked at him and said, well, I'm sure you probably can in time. But here's what I want you to do. He said, I'd like to hire you. He said, we've been needing a janitor. It don't pay much. I think it was about 6 or $7 an hour back then. Not much. But he said, I'd like for you to come. He says, what's, what's involved? He said, well, I need you to clean toilets, clean the bathrooms, vacuum the sanctuary, stuff like that. He said, you'll come in five days a week, put in 40 hours a week. He said, we'll pay you accordingly. And so he said he did that for over a year until Dr. Walker saw change in him, saw humility in him. So he'd come driving up in his Porsche and get out and go and clean the church clean the toilets, do all of those menial tasks that nobody else wanted to do. But Mylon will tell you this day, to this day, he said that was the best thing that could ever happen to him. The very best thing. And I want to tell you something. No service to God is menial or meaningless. As a pastor, I've pastored now for over 20 years. I will tell you that the most difficult position to get filled in the church is what? The nursery. Thank you. Nobody wants to do it, especially the older ladies, because we've already done that. You know, I've, I've diapered enough diapers. I've, I've changed enough. Without thinking about the moms who all week long have wrestled with these infants who are just looking for some kind of sanctuary to be able to come in. And to worship the Lord without having to hold an infant in your hand and keep them quiet in church. And we don't think about the service it would be to that mother, what it would do for that mom or that dad. We have to take turns with them. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's not an easy task. But I want to tell you something. Was going to the cross an easy task? No. Putting up with 12 disciples like Jesus had, do you think that was easy? I mean, working with those boneheads like he had to work with, it wasn't an easy thing, but he whipped them into shape by doing what? By being an example of service to them. He showed them how to serve. Remember when they were out, in the, out on, the, on the, the, the side of the hill next to the, to the, to the Sea of Galilee? And, and Jesus had been teaching all day long. I don't know how long, maybe 12, 14 hours, Jesus had been just expounding the mysteries of heaven to the crowds, and the crowds had grown all day long. And, and they had to come from a long way to get there. And they're there. 
And one of the disciples comes up to him. I believe it was Philip. And he says to Jesus, he says, Master, the people are hungry. They've been here with you all day long. Shall we send them away so that they can go into town and get something to eat? And Jesus says, what? No, you give them something to eat. And I'm sure that maybe it was probably Judas because he's the one that kept the money bags. Well, you don't know how much that's going to cost. Well, that would cost two years wages to feed all these people. Are you out of your mind? Jesus said, well, what do you got? Well, I don't know. Let's, let's kind of take a survey and see what we can find. So the disciples go out and they scoured the whole crowd of 5,000 men, not to mention the women and the children. And they come back and say, well, ain't much. We managed to get two fish and five little loaves. And Jesus said, bring them to me. So they bring them to Jesus. And Jesus exhibits to them what faith is really all about. In other words, he climbs up a tree with a saw, climbs out on the limb, saws off the limb, watches the tree fall. Because he's Lord. He knows who his father is. I mean, you think two loaves and five fishes are anything to him? I mean, he made those fish. Put the eggs in their belly. He knows everything about them. So Jesus just gives thanks and he says, Break it up and distribute it to each man, woman, and child, and and keep doing it until they've all had enough to eat. And I'm sure that they went out and fed all those people, and they were probably having a burping session by the end. Man, I'm so full. I am just like a tick, man. I got so much fish in my belly. Man, don't mention fish to me, you know. And they ate till they were all, the Bible says they ate till what? They were all full. And he says, go out and gather up the fragments. So they go out and they gather up the fragments, and what did they come up with? Twelve baskets. Why do you think that was? How many disciples did he have? Twelve disciples. Enough for them to take a bag lunch home with them, feed their families. I mean, God is just that way. He's always given us more than what we really need. But see, it was a service. Jesus was teaching these disciples how to serve. It don't take much. It's not what you have. It's what you have in you. It's what you have in you. It is your attitude that matters. Let this attitude, let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't think it was anything to be. I mean, he didn't consider the fact that he was God something to be grasped. That he was equal with the Father, that he was there when the earth was created. He was there before the foundations of time. He was there He didn't think that was anything to be grasped, but he lowered himself and he became a servant. Well, if the master of the universe is willing to do that, what about you and me? Are we willing to lower ourselves in order to serve somebody else? You see, that's what it's going to take for us to go to the next level as a church. You know, sometimes when we've got stuff to do, people will hit the doors as fast as they can rather than to run to see what we can do. But we need, as, an in, as, as individuals in the body, to find a place to serve because that's where the joy is. That's where the joy is. That's why Paul says, oh, that I may know him. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, did anybody ever suffer more than Paul besides Jesus? 
Not that I know of. I mean, you go back and read the accounts of in, in, in second, uh, second Corinthians chapter 12 of all the things that Paul endured. My goodness. Stoned three times, shipwrecked for 24 hours, put in prison, beaten, left for dead, da-da-da-da. I mean, all these things that he went through. And then all the revelations that he got caused him to be stricken with a, a thorn in the flesh, which was probably all those things that he had to endure. But the thing of it is, folks, Jesus came to serve us. I think he did it admirably. How many, how many would believe that, would agree with me that Jesus did an admirable job of serving us? Now, what are we willing to do for him? What are we willing to do for him? Listen, whatever you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. Knowing this, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's not that you're doing it for the pastor. It's not that you're doing it for the church. It's that you're doing it for Jesus. And if you're doing it for Jesus, don't do it halfway. Do it with excellence. Go all in. Do it with everything you got. I love the fact that strings are breaking up there this morning. Jeremy's giving it all he's got, man. He's worshiping the Lord, and I just love it. I just love it. I love it when, 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 when our worship team rolls up here on Sunday morning. I'll tell you, these guys are here first thing on Sunday mornings. It's usually him. Here on first thing Sunday morning, and they're, they're setting things up. And then the rest of the crew comes in, and we, we set everything else up in here so that we can all come in and worship the Lord and have a great time. But, you know, we can always use more help. There's always a place for everyone to serve, you know? And that's where the joy comes from. Jesus said, the thief cometh not for to kill, to steal, and destroy, but I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The abundance of life begins when we really learn how to serve because that's where the joy is. As long as we just are willing to sit around on our blessed assurance and just get in on the soaking and everything else, you're not really going to enjoy your relationship with Jesus. It's when you get involved in service that it really starts to count. It's, it's then when you can really measure your stature in Christ to see where you really are. Because growth in Christ is, is, is measured by our willingness and our ability to serve. That's where... That's, how, that's what God looks at. Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. What does he look at? Looks at the heart. Service comes from the heart. It's that attitude. It's having that heart for service that really matters. And that's what God is after in us. What did Jesus say to his disciples? How would people know that we're his disciples? If you have love for one another. So, so what's the measure of that love. It's by our willingness to serve one another. If we love someone, we'll serve them. Right? And it's, it's not laborious. If you love someone, I like to do things for my sweetheart. Wash her car. Sometimes. <laughs> Help her around the house. Back in the floors. Wash the windows. Help her cook. Because I love her. No other reason. But in doing so, I've learned I like to cook. 
Something wrong with that? You don't like that? (laughs) I like it because the more you serve, the more you learn to love it. You'd be surprised at the things that we didn't think we would like doing. Once we start doing, we find out to be a real joy. It just becomes not laborious. But as we do it unto the Lord, as unto the Lord, the joy starts to come. Even those menial things like standing in the parking lot, helping people come in, helping those mothers or, or people get out of the car and come in, people that, that maybe can't walk. I was hit up with on Facebook last week after we had the service by a lady who is, who is a, a, a basically a, a handicapped lady who wants to come to church so bad, but she can't get here because nobody will go pick her up. And I can't. I can't get there because we've got so many things going on here. And I really shouldn't have to. But it's an opportunity for service for someone if they want to go and help this lady. And she was saying, I want to be there so bad. I would have loved to have been in the service this morning, but I can't get there because I can't drive because I'm handicapped. They want to be a part of the church. But they can't because they can't get here. And that's a, that's a, that was a, a, a total... Um, how should I put it? It was an indictment against our church, our fellowship, that there's someone who wants to come, they can't come because they can't get here because nobody will pick them up. Kind of reminds me of the man that was at the pool of Siloam who laid there day after day, week after week, year after year. Had laid there for years. And, and apparently it was so because he said every year at this at a certain time, an angel will come down and trouble the waters. And whoever gets into the water first is healed. But he said, I've got no one to put me in the water. Every time the angel comes and I try to get in, somebody beats me to it. And I can't get there. And Jesus had compassion on the man and healed him. See, that's what he did. He went about doing good. Healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And how did we know that God was with him? Because he did those things. When Jesus was confronted with Nicodemus, remember when Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night? Nicodemus said something to Jesus. He said, we know that you are from God because of what? Because of all the things that you do. Nobody could do the things that you do if they weren't from God. And if we want to do great things for God, it begins with doing the lowly things. It begins with being a servant. That's where it all starts. Anybody ever heard of Benny Hinn? You know where Benny Hinn got his start? He washed the hands of Catherine Kuhlman. He was her her servant. He walked with her for years. And that anointing, like Elijah to Elisha, fell on him when she was taken to glory because he was there. He wasn't a hireling. He was a volunteer. And he stuck with her because he wanted what she had. 
It wasn't her money that he wanted. It wasn't the fame that he wanted. It was the anointing that he wanted. The Bible says that Elisha washed the hands of Elijah. And so when God was ready to transfer the authority of Elijah to someone, who do you think he directed Elijah to go to? He says, I want you to go to Elisha. I want you to lay your mantle upon him, for he's the one to succeed you. What was Elisha busy doing? He was working. He was out in the field with his 12 yoke of oxen. He was working. When Elijah came to him, he wasn't sitting around waiting. Oh, God, I want to be great in your kingdom. Make me great. I will sit and I will wait on you. Do something. It ain't happening. You know what? You can sit there till your bum freezes. And it ain't going to happen. It's only when you begin to serve. It's only begin when you begin to do something. When Jesus went looking for disciples, what were the two that he went after first? They were doing something. Fishermen. You think fishing is easy work? No, not commercial fishing. No, that's hard work. He went after people that were workers, people that were busy doing something. Every one of his disciples were people who were actively doing something. They were serving, doing something. That's what God has called us to do. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you're going to have to learn how to serve. If not, then you will always be a servee. And you will always have no joy. You'll always have to be drug along. You know, you'll be like one of those, I thank God I'm still saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. Pray for me and I'll make it through to the end. Amen. No victory. No joy. It's only when we begin to serve and find our place in service that God can really begin to use us. Now, when Jesus said, you can know that you will know you are my disciples when you have love for one another. So how is love exhibited? I believe it's like this. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says this. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one statement. You shall love, come on, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. You remember when Jesus was asked that question, who is my neighbor? You remember? Someone asked Jesus that question, well, who is my neighbor? They were wanting to justify themselves. You know, what good thing must I do? And Jesus told them, love God, love your neighbor. He said, well, who's my neighbor? He said, well, there was, they were, there was a man walking down the road one day, and he fell among thieves, and he was beaten and left on, on the side of the road for dead. And as he was lying there, this, this Levite comes along. Now, Levite's a guy who, who worked in the temple. He assisted the priest in all the things that they did. And he sees the guy laying in the road. So what does he do? And remember, this guy is a Samaritan. They come down. So he sees a Samaritan. Now, if he'd have been a Jew like he was, he probably went and went over there and helped him. Like a lot of us, you know. 
If they're the right race or if they're the right persuasion or if they're the right political party or something, we might help them. But Jesus said that this Levite saw him and he walked on the other side of the road and went on around him. And just a few minutes later, there was a priest who came along. Now, if anybody were to help that man, who do you think it should be? The priest. But the priest comes along, takes a look at him, and realizes this is a Samaritan. I'm not touching that thing. And he goes on. Then this Samaritan guy comes down the road, and he sees this guy laying over there in the ditch. And he goes over, and he says, hmm. Oh, this man's hurt. And he goes over and he gets down and he starts washing him and cleaning him up, you know, and taking wine from his, his donkey and pouring it in his wounds and, and, and applying salve to his wounds and stuff. And he picks him up and puts him on his own beast and says he takes him to the, to the local doctor and he, he leaves him there and he says, take care of this man. He said, I've got to go on a journey. When I come back, he said, if it costs you any more to take care of him, I'll pay whatever it costs. Just take care of him. And Jesus said, now, which one of these men was a neighbor to that man. Which one do you think? The Samaritan was the man who was a neighbor to this guy that was left on the side of the road. Who are you going to serve? Brethren, serve one another. This is love. Now, those mothers that come in on Sunday morning, I don't see any mothers here this morning. I'll tell you why. I don't see any infant babies in the house, and I'll tell you why. Because we've got nobody to take care of them. We've got very few children because we've got one woman who's struggling so hard back there to take care of all these babies, these little ones. She does a great job. She could use help. You know? There are other areas where we can get involved. And they become places of leadership. But first, we've got to learn how to serve before we can learn how to lead. You see? Someone said one time, if one thinks himself to be leading, he must turn and look and see who is following, or else he's only going for a walk. Some of us think we have great leadership skills, but if no one is following, you need to learn how to serve. That's where leadership begins. Love serves. Jesus exemplified it by lowering himself from his high and lofty position to serve us. And if we desire to be like him, then the first thing we've got to learn to do is to serve one another. Serve one another. Why? What's the motivation for service? Is it to get a staff position? Is it to get remunerated for the money? It's because we love that we serve. Love doesn't expect anything in return. That's unconditional love. That's agape. When Jesus died on the cross, he did it unconditionally. And if we're to love one another, if we're to serve one another, we do it without condition. And we don't look at somebody's credentials before we serve them. We just serve them because we love them. I'll tell you the truth. If I wasn't the pastor, I'd be the first one to volunteer for the nursery. I would. 
I don't know how many moms would trust me with their babies. But I would certainly give it a shot. Because I love babies and I love mamas and I love daddies. I want to serve them. There are opportunities to serve everywhere, folks. You don't have to look very far. It's just that we want to pick what we want to do rather than look at an area of need and fill it. Service is filling it. Finding a need of service and filling it. Filling it. You know, every one of us are called to ministry in the, Bible, in, the, in the church. Every member is a minister. Every one of us are called to serve. Just get over it. I mean, you know, if your motivation to come is just to be served, then you're missing the mark altogether. You'll never reach that place of fulfillment and joy in the kingdom of God until you learn how to serve. Now, if, if that message is not to your liking, just take it up with God because it's in his word. Amen? I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you healthy. I'm here to help you to grow in the things of God. And to grow up in Him means that you've got somewhere along the line, you've got to stop being a baby, stop thinking about yourself, and start thinking about others. Start growing. Amen? Those are some pretty strong words, but I think you're ready for it. I mean, either say amen or start crying, one or the other. Because that's really what it boils down to. Amen. I thank God that, that the vast majority of the folks at Destiny City have learned how to serve. You're learning how, and you do it well. But there's always room for improvement. There's always room. Me included. There's always room for improvement. But I believe that the more that we learn to serve one another, not just the ones that are in here, but I'm talking about those that God is bringing in. The more we learn to serve, the more we're going to grow not only numerically, but the more we're going to grow spiritually, personally. Because really that's where the joy is at. I remember this one old guy, and I'm done after this. I remember this one old guy that, that was in our church when we were in Mooresville. We were youth pastors there. His name was Norman. You remember Norman? Norman was one of the greatest ushers I've ever met. I mean, it was like he would be there like three hours before service. He was the first one there. He'd go in and open up the church and turn on all the lights that need to be on, make sure the heat was regulated and everything else, have all the offering trays out there and everything, have everything all lined up, ready to go. And then, after he got all that done, he would go and he would stand beside the door. And everybody that walked through that door met Norman. He was the first face they saw. He walked through the door, and Norman wouldn't just, just walk up to him and say, hi. He'd walk up to him and say, hello, how are you? I'm so glad you're here. You know, just really enthusiastic about what he was doing. And I was like, man, that guy's got it. He's an anointed deacon. I mean, he didn't even carry the classification or the title of deacon, but he just knew that this was a way he could serve God, and he did it with gladness. And I always, always thought about him. He's going to be with Jesus now. And I guarantee you that Norman got a humongous reward. I mean, his mansion probably covers, I don't know how many acres. Just because of the people that 
he touched on Sunday morning when they walked in the church. He just made them feel welcome. And, and, and we need that. We need that. People to come back where they feel welcome. You know, you go to a restaurant. What are they looking for when you go to a restaurant? You're looking for, for three things. You're looking for atmosphere, cleanliness, and good food. Those three things. You get those three things, you pretty well got it licked. Good service. That's important. To get those, those things down, you can build a successful business. And those, those same principles apply in the house of God, too. Forgive people a good atmosphere. We give them great service. Give them good food. And what was the other one? Cleanliness. Yeah. 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 I hit him right where it hurts. I was talking about food. All right. Now, before I turn you loose this morning, I've hit you pretty hard with the word. Now I just want to pray God would just melt it to our hearts. That what's been spoken this morning won't just go in one ear and out the other. But it will seek deep inside of us and cause us to react to what God has spoken this morning. Are we ready to wash feet? Are we ready to do what God's called us to do? We really want to make an impact in this community. It's not by making noise or anything else. It's through service. That's how we do it. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray, God, that you would just touch us this morning. Father, that each one of us would look for an area where we can serve. Lord, it may not be a high-profile area. It may be a place, Father, that is not noticed by anyone else, but is always noticed by you. So we just pray, Father, that you would just show each one of us, Lord, that we would search our own hearts and our own minds, Lord, to see what our motivation is. And we would use that motivation for service in the kingdom of God. And Lord, I thank you, Father, that you have called each one of us to serve. You've given each one of us gifts. You've given us each one talents. That we can use, Lord, and help us to take those talents and not bury them. But, Father, to take them and multiply them. So that when you return and we have to give an account and we stand before you, our master. And you will say, I gave to you these talents. What did you do with them? And we won't say, Lord, well, I was afraid. And I went and and hid them in the ground because I know that you, you reap where you didn't sow. And Lord, I, I just pray, God, that each one of us, Father, would, would search our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we would find a place where we can serve the Lord with gladness. Lord, we could be a benefit to others and to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, if you meant that this morning, if you prayed that with me, would you just say amen with me? Amen. amen. Praise God. You've been listening to Destiny City, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. For more information, visit us online at destinycity.org.